I don't enjoy the game as much as I used to. Hurling? Hurling, yeah. I don't it, enjoy it. it. It just seems to be a lot easier. And goals mean less than they did. And for me, if you scored a goal in the All-Ireland Final in the 80s and 90s, that was generally the winning of the game. Subscribe to the OTBGAA podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts. Just a slight tangent on, on that. <laughs> this, was a, this is far too much of a tangent. Just a brief interruption. Can I also say one more thing on this? But uh, we also need to impose some rules. Like, we can't just have 20 minute tangents over a text. Come on. This is a refusal to consider the circumstances. I'm not going to entertain that, Joe. This conversation is not a good one, I think. Do we argue much? No. We keep them inside. They're fester. <laughs> See, I thought this was a ridiculous text until I read the top three, and then I thought, Do you know on. what? Oh, yeah. I'd actually debate that with you. <laughs> it is an interesting. Sorry, it's not an interesting question, but. Uh, Let's I, make I, that clear. I love the sound of a snooker referee counting up the score. Well, we're here again. A slight tangent coming at you. Michael McCarthy to my left. Hello, Michael. Hello, Joe. We have Willow Callahan here as well. Will, hello. Joe, how are we going on? And Arthur O'Dea, of course, <laughs> is with us as well. Hello, Arthur. Hi, Joe. Uh, lots of messages in, lots to get to. Slight tangent at offtheball.com. In no particular order, because frankly, I haven't had the time to put <laughs> order on you it. You forgot to put order on it. Yeah. yeah. This one will be quick and brief. Uh, hello, Joe and Co. What is it about commentators in soccer praising players, especially strikers, for following up a shot and getting a rebound? They always say he was rewarded there for taking the risk. What's the risk? Gamble. Gamble <laughs> should be the word. Yeah. I think, yes. Uh, something that always annoys me, as Roy Keane would say, it's his job. Keep up the good work, lads. The best OTB segment for me. Oof. 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 Oh. All the best. Stephen David Vincent Fawn. His good full name. name. Wow. I was expecting it by far there on his uh, favourite LTV segment. Yeah, you know, he kind on. of he was a little bit equivocal. Gambled would be the word. Yeah, he he he's you know what he's done there. He's gambled. Hmm. It's paid off. Yeah, I see where he's coming from. Don't have anything to say about it. He's dead right. Uh, hi, Joe and team. Long time. Doesn't say first time, so maybe it's not his first time email. He's had rejected emails, Joe. But he's a long time, and he does add frequent twinger in the past. And I did recognise his name. <laughs> <Not that. laughs> he is a good man, John. And often you're right, I would dare say. A good man to say, why are you giving Connacht such short shrift on your uh, Monday or Wednesday night? Oh, yeah. Anyway, yeah, that's uh, an interesting question. <laughs> it's uh, a fair point. Is that the question? Is that the question? No, it's not. <laughs> no, sorry. That's what he tweets when he says... Am I fair? When yes. he says he's been a frequent whinger in the past. That's what he's alluding to. I suspect, John, I mean, you can... Correct me if not. Uh, I wonder if journalists such as yourselves have in the past been in the know collectively about some facet of a sports story, but have not shared that information with the public. I'm not talking about journalists unable to publish because somebody with deep pockets has managed to convince a judge to grant an injunction. I'm talking about an understanding that uh, something uh, which cannot be said in public, either out of delicacy or fear of libel. Does this happen? If so, how do you feel about not telling the entire story? He goes on to say, I ask this because here in the West, there's an ongoing concern about the relationship between Connacht and Bundyaki. There's an awful amount of idle speculation in the air, along with some downright bizarre rumours. The local podcasts are doing a great job as usual, but I sometimes feel like they know more than they are saying. So how do you manage this balancing act? Keep up the good work. John from Leitrim in Galway, John Rogers. John, thank you for the email and we'll do more Connacht if we can. I would say all the time, all the time. In my world. <laughs> yeah. No, you do. You Oftentimes what you know, Joe, is it's not newsworthy to report it either. Even if it was about sensibility. There might be facets of stories that you know, but it's not for public consumption or it might not be relevant to the story. I think it's delicacy. I think often it is very relevant to the story, but you can't say what's going on. 
I find anyway. You hear, you know what the real story there is from oh, somebody okay. and then you think to yourself, oh, that explains that. Not talking, by the way, about the Bundyaki situation. No, actually, I was about to clarify on that, that I actually don't know anything about this and haven't heard anything about it. So everything from here on in is nothing to do with that. So I feel I know more about that than I can say on air. About the Aki thing? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I don't, Yeah, luckily. But generally, I would say, on the point of is it a difficult balancing act, I have got to the point now where if I'm talking to somebody in the know and they're about to tell me, and they, you know, Ireland's a small place today. You know what's really happening there? I will often stop them now and say, if I can't say that on air, I actually don't want to know. I just don't need that bouncing around in here. Sometimes it's good to know because you might uh, be more sensitive to a situation than you would otherwise be. But uh, yeah, I'd say all the time. I'd say you know what gets really risky, John? Yeah. It's when you've had a conversation with someone. They may well be a pundit or someone that you know or another journalist. You're not quite sure if that conversation happened on air. Or if it happened in the country. Uh. Yeah. That's it. You don't you don't want that. The exception to the rule is everything around Stephen Cluxton. Nobody knows anything. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't have a clue. <laughs> You've tried lanes. That's, that's the there's, only uh, there's levels of on this as well though, isn't there? Because there's things then that like, you know, you hear information that is absolutely newsworthy but is and not because of a super injunction, but because of uh investigation or because of something else, you know what I mean? And 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 you have to have conversations, even off air, with people who, you know, don't know as much about this person as you do. And you can't give the reason as to why you have these thoughts. I, I, I'm talking around in circles here. It's obviously very hard to say for the very reasons that I brought up in the first place, you know. But sometimes you know things that just cannot be reported, okay. right, for legal yeah. reasons and for various other reasons, Crazy. right, not, not being able yeah. to prove things and so on and so forth. You right? could collapse the case in two seconds. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Well, ne rating. never mind Ed, like 400 other things around that. But, mm. you know, it's just you can't. It's uh, impossible to talk about. But sometimes that can be with high profile people that get talked about by a lot of people who don't know the story. Yeah. You know, so that, that that's one side of it. And then a lot of it other is is just kind of like not for public consumption. Yeah. And I think for those ones, you almost wish you don't know. You yes, I know. do. Yeah. Increasingly, I say I don't want to know. Yeah. So what do you do. No, not always. Like I, occasionally you just can't not hear something. Mm. Um, but in the main, I would if someone's really up to give me something, I'll say, <laughs> do I want to know this? I don't want to <laughs> know. Uh, so uh, Rory McIlroy being discussed by several people. I guess that's one of the stories of the week, the Masters. Uh, first of all, Kev gets the ball rolling. Hi, lads, long time listener, etc. Can we call out the shambles that is Masters coverage? Why not pull back the curtain, and let the cameras in for every hole? It is strange that they'll let Rory walk down the ferry with an AirPod in his ear, but not show the leaders on day three. They need to get out of their own way and open this event up. The British Open coverage is sensational and it shows what can be done. Thanks, Kev. Again, that is a short conversation. Agree, agree, agree. It's one of the more bizarre practices in world sport. It's like the Masters don't realise what their own app does. Their television conduct would suggest that somehow this isn't all available to the world anyway. Yeah. Um, if people aren't aware of what we're talking about. You watch the British Open on Sky. Every single shot from 6.55 in the morning is shown. Every single shot. You watch the Masters and across Thursday and Friday, it's featured groups for a lot of the day. And then eventually the coverage will start properly. And the reference there to round three is that uh, on the uh, Saturday morning, yes, Saturday morning, John Ram, Brooks Kepka, Sam Bennett as well, in the same group, their first six, seven holes were not shown live on TV. Mm -hmm. So you had like Nick Faldo, 
constantly in his green jacket, I might add. He loves that. I noticed that. Has he, does he always do that? No, it's just a master's thing. No, sorry, I don't mean like on like a Tuesday in November. I mean when he's at Augusta, does he always wear that? Had Nick Faldo not retired, Joe? From CBS. I remember the, the teary conversations yeah. when he was leaving. and He was a guest commentator on Sky. On Pitch in for the big ones from Sky, yeah. you know, just to be a part of it. I don't think the Green Jackets allowed to leave the property. No, I don't think so. Oh, they, really? they were making a thing about yeah. didn't Ballesteros bring his to Spain, yeah. which was quite obviously against the him. grain, yeah. So I think Fowler's making hay while the sun shines and he can't. But so Gary, Player's, Gary Player having his uh, on display in his house in that Curb Your Enthusiasm episode was nonsense. Maybe. Breaks my heart. Yeah. I don't know. But Maybe it's yeah. a replica. But when the leaders were playing, that's why Faldo and another were back in the studio, yeah. just killing time in between the occasional shot that was provided. So it's like, it's it's something from the 80s, really. Well, it used to be a lot worse. I think that oh, yeah. people need to know that. Like, there was a time when, when BBC had the Masters and it was, oh, BBC were always playing for it. Every year without fail, it was nothing to do with them. It would They would come on air at eight. Mm. They would show the odd highlight shot over the course of that full hour. And then at nine o'clock at night, think about how late into the round. There was, like... Up until about 10 years ago, I couldn't have tell, told you much about the first eight holes. No, it's at Augusta. Really you started seeing it. Maybe the par five eight was where you started seeing yeah. the, uh, was where you started seeing the leaders uh, on a Sunday. And, you, and uh, by the way, you would see that hole played by those two and nobody else. And then you'd see the back nine. And that's it. Arthur, you messaged me over the weekend to say you thought the golf coverage on Sky was top, top, top. Loved it. Loved I see. I don't mind that part of it. I thought like, I, I don't know. Is it being, is that being curated? to give you the best or a decision made at the start of day and they stick with that. But I, I didn't notice it. I have no real interest in seeing every shot. Yeah. It's kind of like mad to me. It's the same thing as Red Zone or something. It's like, I don't need, I don't need to see all that. Give me just the best stuff. Mm. Um, I thought it was class. I thought all the commentary was class. How quickly, the I don't know, like whatever way they switch in between the two groups. Um, so seamlessly, it was brilliant. I, I thought it was absolutely fantastic. Who was your favourite? Um, I did enjoy Faldo. Yeah, I thought that was I just great. thought he was like, there's just, I, I also, there's, I love the way they kind of would defer to him, like, oh, you you know what this is like, yeah. what's going on here? It's like, he does yeah. bring authority. It's like, th- what, he's won three? Yeah. Yeah. Authority and colossal ego, which again that. is, is I'm fine that. with that. Well, I, I love the chat between him and McGinley when they had to kill time. There's about 25, 30 yeah. minute break. I didn't get to see it live because I was at the rugby at the time, but I got to see it afterwards. Someone had a link up where you could download it and... I was gripped listening to McGinley talk to Faldo because I actually thought McGinley as a fellow player was getting lovely nuggets of information out of Nick Faldo and I got to maybe know Nick Faldo a little bit more than I had previously because I always got this feeling that he was cocky. That was just generally the feeling I got about Faldo. While I came away thinking this is a guy who squeezed every drop out of the ability that he had and I couldn't help but respect that a lot. Mm, I've never seen a long form interview with Faldo like that. Yeah and it's fascinating like he was an absolute loner on tour Mm. and um there's an amazing line from, God, what's the coach's name? Who transformed his game. Remember Faldo rebuilt his swing? David Ledbetter. And when Faldo fired him, Ledbetter quips that he knew that Faldo hadn't written the letter himself. It was done by letter. Hadn't written the letter himself because at the end it wished him and his family all the best. <laughs> so we're talking about that type of personality who was a loner on tour, had no friends. And that's, you know, McGinley was getting into that a bit. Like, do you regret the fact that you missed out on the camaraderie on tour and as he said himself no yeah. <laughs> I wonder would Faldo have opened up to someone who wasn't a fellow former player as well I, I think McGinley put him at ease though no he probably did look there was a degree with Faldo I mean if, if you're doing a we defer to you we're massaging your ego like if, if ever there's a player who's happy to do a gather around kids 
let Daddy Nick tell you how it's done. Uh, Faldo's happy to go there. Here, tell me, is the is the is that coverage style of the Masters something that's just done to kind of uphold the mystique and prestige around it? Like, no, they would do it for all the majors. Oh, is it okay? Yeah, in Sky's major coverage is top top. Oh, okay, full on all the works. It's always been that style, like of of you know three at a time and changing over. I feel like they've actually come across a really good crew at the moment. It's, it's really good. McGinley is really good. If you see like someone like um, Coltard as like Nick Doherty, these former players that have come on that are better broadcasters than they ever were golfers. Mm-hmm. And that's no offence to them. As God, but you know, it's like there is, a, there is a good tradition of that in like golf and snooker seemingly and maybe tennis. But, it, really, uh, it really is. Yeah. yeah. But uh, both of them are brilliant and they really add to the coverage but they don't, they don't, they feel more like broadcasters and then defer to like McGinley as the expert and all even though they were like Ryder Cup players themselves. It's kind of strange, isn't uh, it? People are shocked. Ewan Murray is like the lead commentator. Yeah. People are like shocked to hear oh Ewan Murray was Darren Clark's coach. Mm. Ewan Murray knows golf inside out. Yeah, Ewan Murray is so good. By but he, he well, would yeah. never offer yeah. an opinion really. He does the occasional and it's brilliant. Like one swing, you'll say, oh, club got stuck behind him inside. He pushed it wide, blocked it. And you're like, whoa, you forget that this guy knows. He, he sees exactly what's I, happening. I, love, I think it was Murray. It was Murray or Faldo. I think it was on their thing when at some point when Kepka hit that ball up between the, oh, whatever it was, like it was sort of on, a, it was on the level. It was kind of a thing. It's like, where is he going to stand? <laughs> oh, that was Faldo. Yeah. yeah, that was Faldo. It turned out he had loads of room. Loads of bad camera angle. <laughs> it, was just, it was just great. <laughs> Speaking of where is he going to stand on the Friday or the Thursday, where uh, the fairway bunker at eighteen, Tiger Woods had the ball just perched on the grass at the edge of the bunker, and he was trying to find a standing position to hit the shot. I don't know if either any of you no. saw that, but like there was a degree almost of. Joe LaCava, Joe LaCava needs to step in here. He's going to break his leg. Mm. It was like, oh, God, don't hit the shot. Oh, And eventually he hacked it out of there. But, I mean, he was, I don't know what is after limping, but he was there by the end of the thing. He's Saw the aftermath of it, all right, yeah. It's kind of sad. Like, you kind of feel like that it's not really the image that we need to be seeing a Tiger, like, year after year. Whatever about it happened once last year when he was still recovering like if his leg isn't up to it oh. and isn't up to kind of the, the contours and the you know the the effort that goes into kind of walking around these courses while trying to hit a ball 350 yards yeah, I, I really would rather not see it I have to say I don't know why yeah. I'm sure he just can't let it go and feels like he can get fixed but you know he nearly lost that leg like I mean yeah. there's, this is uh, I don't know if this is ever going to get better it's interesting as well, like what a draw he is. Because I was just looking at you know the you get the three day figures on the TV, so now they've got them for the first round today, mm. and ESPN's figures fell down by nearly eleven percent. They lost around three hundred thousand viewers compared to the first day of the year before, and ESPN attributed that directly to the amount of people that watched Tiger's comeback the season before. They showed loads of Tiger on the first day. They did, yeah. So they reckon the Tiger is accountable for probably one in eleven people watching the coverage. Well, the big cliche in golf is always. Tiger doesn't move the needle, Tiger is the needle. So it's, it's always, always borne out in the TV figures when he's playing or not playing. A quick uh, word, I'm, I'm curious as to what your thoughts are on the McElroy odyssey. Well, I talked a bit about it in the news round. I, 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 you know, we, there's obviously a mental block there. I'd be interested to know what you guys think. That's yeah, hard to argue with that. If It's very hard to be too hard on him. But like at the same time, I find it funny how much is invested in him from our perspective because I think with like with golf like it always seems so preposterous to me to say anyone will win any competition 
and let alone turn up for whatever is one of the four competitions and go, oh, he'll win it. Like, it's it's ludicrous. Like, I was even looking earlier on, I think, is, is Woods the last guy to win it back-to-back? Oh, two. So, which would kind of suggest that, yeah. you know, within 12 months of winning on the same course, you can't come back. No, So few people come back and win again. Yeah. That it's like, it's it's such a one in, it's such a minute chance of actually doing it. It's so difficult. Mm. So, I, But obviously he does have some sort of hang-up now that's kind of beyond... Beyond his capabilities. Yes. So it's, I don't know what you do about that. That's don't know. And I, I know he's working with Barbara Tella. Bob's a real, you know, shoot for the moon and you might hit the stars kind of a guy. Like, I don't know if that's going to cut it either. Like, I don't want to psychoanalyze McElroy here, but the fact he's decided but, but not to But please do. But yeah. please do. But the fact he's decided <laughs> not to go to the Heritage this yeah. week would really, like, that's one of the big PGA Events. Well, it's, it's one of the elevated events, and he's already he's used Mr. up PGA. his and he's used his one exemption. He skipped the tournament of champions, so you're allowed to miss one of mm. the elevated events, which he's almost pioneered. It does suggest he is. Well, on when the floor. you say he's allowed to miss one, what's going to happen to him? Like, I don't know. <laughs> Presume there's some kind of. There's probably <laughs> he's going to jail. Might be a fine, or maybe yeah. he'll, back channels. He'll have to say, "Oh, I'll look, I'll." turn up in Minnesota for the Arthur O'D challenge <laughs> I want to see the Arthur we'll O'D take challenge we'll take him <laughs> but I mean I wonder does it get as built up to Rory as we all do when you like you, we yeah, know how important the slam is to oh, him it does. and then when he's in really good form like he's been going into this to this tournament you're thinking maybe this is the chance like as Mick said earlier on the news round he's in his early 30s he's got loads of time yet to win this mm. but the longer it goes mm. people will continue to go you know what 10 years ago you really should have won but you m- messed it up on the back nine Where'd will you, it ever actually happen and he was uh, when I was watching the 11th I don't know if it was Raman Kepka it probably was and I, I was just watching it with my wife and I was like oh that's the this is the hole where Rory hit it into a house that people didn't even know was on the, the course yeah, the tent. Yeah, yeah. I, I, well I got the hole wrong but I still the point the point stands right it was like this is where he hits it into a house that people didn't even know was on the course and they're thinking like god like he was you know whatever again to use the word bottle or whatever but like that happened then he choked that that day as a kid and it was always the way back from that but something has always happened to him Whenever there's been a chance, there was no chance this week. It never happened. Like I mean, when you, you, I presume you were watching live, Joe, when you saw his second shot into the first on Thursday. I'd say you went, uh oh, yeah, first shot. It was fifteen, twenty yards wide, like yeah, wide right. And and you're thinking, the tee shot even. Yeah. Did him having the earpod in, Joe, make any difference whatsoever? He's he was already in big trouble at that stage, even though that was only nine holes in. Mm. I thought that gave us an interesting insight as a final thought in that he was in the middle of the fairway. And already, I think what he was saying was out of kilter with where the tournament was because Kepka and Ram were racing towards seven under. He was still stuck on even par. Mm-hmm. You can't give up two of those guys seven shots, even if it's first round. But when he was mic'd up, he was preaching patience. Yeah. yeah, look, it's been a bit messy, long way to go. And then on the ninth, he said, well, I've got one, two, five adjusted. And they said, what are you going to hit in there? And he said, oh, I've got a perfect wedge for that number. And he hit the shot and he came up 20 feet short. And then he put back in the earpod and he said, yeah, just, you know, just as I was hitting it, I eased off. I was worried about going long and going long there is scary on nine because you're dead if you go long. But I thought at that stage he needed to get far more aggressive. Like, just go for it, man. Just go for it. You're Rory McIlroy. It's in your DNA to be aggressive. This like, oh, I'll just be very conservative and not punch myself out of the tournament in the first round when he's already seven shots behind like two studs. These aren't guys who are going anywhere, as proved Ram and Kepka. And I just, and John McHenry on Twitter was making the point there was, you know, on 13 where he 
double-crossed into far-left bunker. Like, he should have just taken more loft and fired a draw in there. Again, aggressive, letting the club go the way he can when he's relaxed. And I appreciate he's not relaxed, but he has to get himself into that mindset where he just says, I'm going to be aggressive. Because there have been numerous masters now where, for me, he's played way too conservatively and admitted as much in the COVID Masters, the 2021. Right, some of these Masters were pretty low scores as well, Joey. You can't afford, when you're playing against the field, who could get to low figures in the double digits. You can't afford to be well, I just think he's so experienced now. He should have known the conditions on this Thursday are benign. The weather's about to get messy. These guys are in the distance on seven under. His game was not right. So, look, that that's the fundamental problem. But also the conservatism. Like, just go for it. Just, if you're going to lose this thing, just die on your shield and go for it. But whereas I feel he's trying to, I'm not going to mess up the first round. And then are you playing with the full commitment and freedom? And look, it's in his head. But isn't this the thing, though, about like the Masters and about the Grand Slam? Like, one, it's the Masters on its own is such a big thing. And two, it's the Grand Slam. Like, does Rory play that way? Does he have as many tactics? Does he think as deeply about how he's going to approach every other tournament? Probably not. It doesn't feel like it. it you know, goes, it just plays. And it's yeah, sometimes he has done. wind issues at the open or whatever. But other than that, you never think about whether how Rory's going to play. And then suddenly he turns up on Thursday at Augusta yeah. and has all these plans. Mm. And even can't if be changing things for oh, one even, tournament. Even if his plan was to be conservative, at a certain point he had to recognise the way the wind was blowing. Yeah. No pun intended. And that actually, I can't let these guys get a seven, eight, nine shots ahead of me. Just just go for it a bit more. I'd love to see him go for it. Easier said than done. More than anything, I would be sympathetic to his predicament in that his last leg of the Grand Slam is at the same course every year. The scar tissue is immense. I'd be far more confident if it was any of the other three and he would have a different course. I'd say, well, look, guaranteed over the next 15 years he's going to find one he really likes. Whereas next year is more difficult again going back Driving up Magnolia Lane, how's he going to feel? Do you think he'd have won more majors if he'd won that Masters when he did? Yeah. I mean, like, uh, hypothetically, if that hoodoo wasn't there for him. And to be fair, he won in Why the do US you think Open that? Stra- because he came back, yeah, I he think came he back would, from I it think, so strongly. I think he would have won the Masters a few times for a start. A few times. Like, it's, yeah. a, it's like Arthur was saying, it's like, I know Rory has this talent level, but like, John Ram just won his first Masters. Do you know what I mean? It's no, like, there is, there, it isn't a guarantee that even playing well is going to get you the Masters. You That's know? fair. You can't say anything with guarantee. It's just you're into the hunch. Yeah, true. Of course, I know. At that stage. What I mean is even at his best, he's not like, it's not just a cakewalk to go and win. The, a lot has to go right for you in a week. You no, know? And, and you see other years he's turned up where his form hasn't been good or there have been genuine problems with his game. Like his putting at times was not good enough to win the Masters. His wedge game at times was not good enough to win the Masters. So there are certain years where people on Twitter, I seem to get a lot of them say, he's Butler. There were certain years where his game wasn't in the right shape to win. He didn't bottle those years. This year, it's a mental failing. His game was good enough. When we were doing our end of year review stuff last year, I was kind of tapping around the last round at St Andrews and you straight in, you went, he blew it. Yeah, he did. He did not play well on the Sunday. So to take the Augusta hoodoo out of it, is there an issue wider with Rory McIlroy and closing the deal at the moment? It's 2014 now since he's yeah. won a major. So four majors is this unbelievable achievement that like, we can't ever take away, but we're coming up on 10 years mm. no, there is in the question. prime of his career. Yeah. Like, yeah. That, that Sunday at St Andrews, that's a, uh, there's a very good parallel with the attitude I've described on Thursday, just gone that conservatism with St Andrews, just I'm not going to lose it. And Cam Smith went out and won it. And it's easier to win from behind. But like Rory shooting 
was it a 72 or 70 on the Sunday? That I think, I think 71, I think. So whatever it was, yeah. like for those conditions that day, it just, you know, that, that's beneath his level. So it's, it's fascinating. And look, who knows, maybe, maybe as a final thought, the way his career arc is amazing is he goes another 10 years without winning the Masters and completes the Grand Slam in his mid 40s. And it's just like this moment of euphoria. And, and it's a bit like Mayo not winning Sam for so long. And then it's, it happens. Whereas if he just wins the Grand Slam now, it's like, ah, oh, you know, Holy Grail completed, <laughs> you know, so maybe it'll be a more epic kind of moment to join live or else the Greg, <laughs> <laughs> or else the Greg Norman. Ernie Els oh. ghosts can I bring us full circle as you yes. mentioned Greg Norman and we talked about Nick Valdo earlier was watching this is a full on tangent apologies uh, watching not even a slight one before uh, the coverage one of the days I've, I'm ready for these things much earlier than American TV will give me I'm done by the time it starts uh, Norman and uh, Valdo 96 you know and the chase and the collapse and so on and I was really struck by how much of a moment in time and an end of an era thing that was because Faldo as he never did is like not wearing a hat there's the sort of two old timers the 80s and 90 early 90s stars going up against each other and it cuts to like Phil Mickelson you know like who had had a really good round or young Phil Mickelson and he's wearing these like hilariously baggy clothes but he's also not wearing a hat and I'm thinking like the next year the next time they go to Augusta Tiger Woods the 21 year old comes in and wins front to back with the Nike hat on him and nobody's ever not commercial in golf again. Oh, it's a line in the sand. And what's but it's an unbelievable, like everything is lined up as a line in the sand, isn't it? It's crazy. The fact that it was Faldo and Norman even, you know? And uh, Woods played with Faldo those opening two days and I'm pretty much convinced Faldo to quit. retired that day. <laughs> Gone. In 97. Holy shit, what's this? I can't. Who? <laughs> 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 I think yeah. he was done that day. Yeah. Yeah. But seeing Phil Mickelson without a hat and you're thinking, I've seen this guy for his whole career, you know, but I didn't. I didn't probably see those first three years or so, you know, it's just incredible, like, symmetry, I think, of that whole thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. We will take a short break. I should let you know, Rodri has scored for Manchester City. They are 1-0 up against Bayern Munich, 30 minutes on the clock, nil all between Inter and Benfica. This is a Slight Tangent. Myself, Michael McCarthy, Willow Callahan, Arthur O'Dea, back with you in just one moment. You're welcome back. Slight tangent. Arthur O'Dea is here. Willow Callan here is here. Mick McCarthy is here with myself. We are uh, the OTB PM FM team riffing on the uh, stories of the week and getting to your emails. So we're going to touch on the opening round of the GA Championship in a moment. But for instance, an email into a slight tangent at offtheball.com was about Celtic. Hi, lads. LTFT to the best show on radio. That's a sweet intro. That's on so point. LTFT. <laughs> Those interrupted out, yeah. the emails again. <laughs> I write in relation to Celtic FC. Uh, this is a guy of my vintage and he lives in my neck of the woods, actually. Carl and Clester. <laughs> you like, actually went to school with Carl. If you see me, Carl, come up and say hi, for goodness sake. I meant pounding the pavement. He, d- he doesn't mean a call. Like no eye contact and make it brief. <laughs> but do come and say hi. Uh, I write in relation to Celtic FC. As was common growing up in Ireland in the early 2000s, I chose to support an English team, Manchester United in my case, and Celtic. While I had a choice in supporting United, I automatically started supporting Celtic, similar to a supporting the national team. He goes on to reference things like Martin O'Neill, Larson, all those big memories. 
and then says my interest in Celtic during the 2010s dwindled due to lack of competition from Rangers and the overall lowering of standards of Scottish football Celtics struggles in Europe etc I have however rekindled my interest in the team since the arrival of Ange Postacoglu however I would say a lot of Irish sporting fans would not be able to pick out Ange if he walked into the local pub for a pint over the weekend Celtic beat Rangers 3-2 to all but secure the league with goals from Inform, Kyogo and Jota. I brought up the old firm result with my friends mid-twenties in the pub on Saturday night. The beachcomber, I'll wager, Carl. Uh, not to my surprise, one of them, sorry, not one of them, not one of them knew the match had happened and they admitted they didn't really have any interest in Celtic anymore. In recent years, the dedicated Celtic club shop in the Islac closed and I find it less common to spot a Celtic jersey being worn in the streets. I was just wondering if you could discuss your own personal experiences with following Celtic and your thoughts on the Irish sporting public's changing relationship and interest in the club. Do Irish children follow Celtic anymore? Why did you all start supporting Celtic and do you have any interest in the club anymore? It's a presumptuous. Carl, I think you're going to be disappointed with your answer to the first part of that. Uh, or are Celtic just as relevant now as they were in the past? Carl in Colester. Interesting email, good email. Yeah, <laughs> Arthur OG, get the ball rolling. Did you support Celtic growing up? Um, I wouldn't go so far as to say support. You know, watched the games obviously when the against the UEFA Cup final in '03. Yeah, yeah, but that's that's what I did. I remember that run. I remember then they beat Liverpool. Obviously, lost the final to Porto. Yeah, I would have been watching that, but we didn't have uh, Sky. We're still showing things now, so we didn't have Sky, so we wouldn't have been watching anything in Scottish. Celtic football. jerseys are plenty in your primary school, secondary school. Uh, well, they would have been about like they would have been about no more than Irish jerseys and United and Liverpool would have been the three some Arsenal but that would have been the guts of it yeah Leeds I should hasten to mention but um, I don't have been yeah there would have been but and is your sense there is a decline in interest in Celtic I don't know like I, I can only imagine so there's more football now to watch better football to watch than there was then mm-hmm. so I mean and you're, you're you, you like so then we wouldn't have been able to see anything to do with what was going on across Europe really Champions League nights was it mm. um, whereas now Celtic yeah but like it's it's just uh, if it was faintly ridiculous when I was growing up that only two teams had won the league since 1986 15 16 17 years later that still being the case but one of them relegated out of the, the division for a while yeah. it's a joke like it's not a, it's not a serious league so it's I don't feel it's serious um, in terms of garnering interest I, I don't I like I'm certain there are plenty of legitimate Celtic fans but it can only possibly be in terms of I suppose sentimental reasons towards it like you can't be going there for any sort of competitiveness like it's 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 a, it, you know it's a broken league and has been for a long long time so I don't know what you, again people go there and it does matter to them but football wise it's just it, it's unimportant like Michael I think the <sighs> I don't know. I think there's a natural connection that's like I do also feel that the connection is real. I I I do always disagree with the whole Celtic are just like a Scottish club and you know there is like a, a real Irish connection there that there's nothing wrong with an Irish person feeling a true kinship to Celtic. I I always think that that's a it's a very real thing that can be dismissed sort of glibly sometimes. Um, for me personally, I would say that, like Arthur, I don't know, I would have grown up without ever watching Celtic back when they had no numbers and so on, wanting them to win and wanting them to beat Rangers, but with no real passion or knowledge of it. But then in that Martin O'Neill era, 
I did like I fell in love with Henrik Larsson he's one of my favourite ever footballers mm -hmm. and I think that when you have that and a likeable team that goes with it and the fact that they went on a lot of Champions League runs as well as that UEFA Cup run and they were very visible and there was something so magic genuinely without the cliche about the European Knights in Celtic Park and where you kind of felt like anything could happen there for a few years um, all the way up to that like Man United game maybe in 06 that might have been the sort of uh, the, start, the beginning of the end of it that was post O'Neill um, when Nakamura scored so like there was a, I had a real interest then but I did feel that it was dependent on the team it, it was dependent on the characters involved and how they were competing and when the Scottish when Scottish competitiveness went down in Europe and you know the SPL just was what it was so did my interest and to be honest now I don't really have a, a, a rooting interest do I find that there's less out there I still see it really really strongly where I see it but I do agree that there's probably just less Celtic jerseys walking down the yes, street so you know I don't I actually like in Dublin anyway I can't speak for the rest of the country I think it's quite noticeable yeah I think so too and I think it's just fallen off the the sporting offering uh, in terms of its importance. Like I feel back in the Larson days, it was on the 6-1 news and stuff and it just yeah. wouldn't be as much now. It is a touch, it is a touch, but yeah. not as much. They beat Rangers one time, I think it was like 6-2 yeah. and it was like an early kickoff as they all are, I suppose. And it was Larson like, Lob. it was like we went to the pub you know what I mean? Like, like, like to watch it because we didn't have Sky, or whatever, and it was a big deal. And that was, and I think Celtic might have like wrapped up the league or something close, much like this weekend, actually. You know, and it was a big, big deal that game. And uh, that's not the case this weekend. Like, I would have almost, um, and told by any Celtic sporting mates of mine to bore off. I was very dismissive of it, even as a kid. I was dismissive, potentially unfairly so, but like of the standard. And I thought, but one of the great attractions of the whole thing and the old firm in particular is just how much hatred there is, mm. which, you know, the TV commentary would uh, euphemistically, euphemistically describe as atmosphere. And I just thought it was all a bit pathetic. Even as a teenager kid, I thought it's grim that like this is just about hatred. It's petty. <sighs> you know, I, I, and again, I was told to properly bore off, but I could never get on board with it. I, and I think your family is part of it you know so my dad is a Manchester United supporter that's kind of where it, my love was funneled and if he'd been a big Celtic supporter I guarantee I would have been a Celtic fan and would have seen it very differently but when you know I, uh, the Jesuits give me the boy till seven and I'll give you the man mm -hmm. you know whenever I first started encountering Celtic in a big way when my mates started supporting them at that stage I was thinking just not for me so I never I never um, got into them enough to be a, a lapsed Celtic fan I would say like Carl. Oh, yeah, I think to Arthur's point, and we talked about this a few weeks ago on this very segment, a lot of young people now are more drawn towards players than clubs, rather than put the point that you just made where Celtic was generally handed down by generations of fans. Mm. Now I think youngsters are more likely to support Mbappe or Messi or Cristiano, whoever they support. I think they still support an English club though, wouldn't they? Probably, but I think they'd be less likely to be drawn to Celtic. But to your yeah. emailer's point, I think the big moment was when Rangers, whatever way you want to put this, whether they were liquidated or whether they went down the divisions, yeah. um, depending on your persuasion, probably. That was a moment, I think, when Scottish football pretty much went off a cliff. Yeah, like Celtic nosedived, and there's even that feeling there was a certain shrug, even with the unbeaten Brendan Rodgers side and the multiple trophies that they were oh, winning. Yeah. I was hollow, yeah, without a rivalry, yeah, it yeah. didn't have that excitement. Well, what was the first thing you would do back in the day when you saw the Celtic result? You'd look at the Rangers result. 
Yeah. And so without their... Still the case. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. T- true. So without but that even, adversary... But even when Celtic were really good in, in 03, it was not long ago that Rangers had been really good in Europe. You think back to that kind of 93, 94 yeah. period where Rangers were right up there. And then Rangers had some incredible players. As it worked out afterwards, double contracts were probably part of their success. But at the turn of the millennium, both teams were really stacked. They were actually really good. Yeah, they were good, good at the same time. Yeah, sure, Brian Loudrup was playing for no, Rangers in his prime. Yeah. Like, the Boers and and does, it, does it grab you? Like... Right now? Or ever? Not so much. I like watching Ange Postacoglu's teams. Yeah. But generally in school, we would have kind of been Celtic well-wishers as opposed to being like rabid Celtic fans. <laughs> That's like, yeah. a good way we of putting it. We That's a very good way of putting it. We were definitely Henrik Larsson fans. Don't get me wrong, I wasn't supporting Rangers either. I thought the whole thing was a bit... The Rangers, I, I, often, I often say is like, because obviously like I'm a Claire GA supporter, but like, you know, I'm from Dublin, was born in Dublin and like was more into the dubs as a kid. Uh, before they started winning things, probably was uh, my weirdness. But I always say the one part of uh, Dublin that's left in me is a kind of a hatred for Meath. Now, I say it's sport hatred, you know, let's let's, let's, let's get the angry tweets, you know. Yeah. But I think there's a little bit of that with Celtic and Rangers still. So as much as you say it is all stupid and phony and No, I don't, think, I don't think it's phony, phony I, but it, it's just That's not an, an attractive basis. No, me. no, I, I agree with you, I agree with you, but I, I, as yet it is still built in me that uh, the less I care about Celtic, I still kind of dislike Rangers the same amount, you know. Yeah. And I wonder, is that part of the lessening of it a little bit as well because we're not like that anymore but when I was a kid I remember my cousin was like glory hunting we were like five six or whatever and he was like we'd have a Scottish team an Italian team yeah. and he was like oh my Scottish team is Rangers because they were winning the league every year and I was like you can't support Rangers and there was this big like anger that he was like how dare he support Rangers yeah. you can't you're not yeah. like this kind of like anti-Brit sentiment sort of thing I don't think that would be as strong now thank no, God no not as strong you know uh, funny I probably find Celtic more attractive now under Ange Postacoglu than back in the fire and brimstone days. Yeah. Because it's the basis of it is not. Isn't it just very homogenised? A little bit. Yeah. Like the team, <laughs> the team couldn't no, no. be playing on any continent. A, you know what I mean? Bit either way. I take that point as well. But the previous version. You'd miss Scott Brown though. Light me you? up. So a kind of impressive but slightly homogenised version. Yeah. I'm kind of more open to. He's quite a charismatic type. Absolutely, and it's no reflection, like, my outlook's no reflection of the people involved. I just think that it's, the foundation for their success is just so flawed, like, there's, you know, On what do you... Complete, complete tangent, Joe, on this one. He mentioned Jada scoring at the weekend. Uh-huh. Jada's new haircut. He's gone for a mullet. And I saw someone actually compare very nicely at the weekend that basically it looks like Ange Postacoglu has had some effect. This guy could be a back three for the Australian Sevens. He used to have lovely flowing hair and now he's got a mullet and a moustache, which I didn't expect out of Jada whatsoever. Okay. Google it if anyone hasn't seen him. Cahill is now going to keep his eyes down when he passes me on the pavements of St. Anne's. He does look very Australian, I have to say. (laughs) There you go. Uh, Last email, let's try to squeeze it in. It was the opening round of the football championship. Joe and Co. Much was made last week of John Duggan's comments with regard to Hurley no longer being an enjoyable spectacle due to the abundance of scores and the lack of physicality. While it's hard to argue with the point he makes, surely Gaelic football is in a much worse place in terms of spectacle. I was at the Cork Clare game in Ennis at the weekend and while the second half did have an element of excitement to it due to the game going down to the wire, the first half of the match was an absolutely dreadful watch. Clare brought all 15 players behind the ball. You could hear a pin drop as Cork can pass the ball over and back across the pitch for large parts of the first half, the only excitement coming when either side broke at pace. Unfortunately, these lateral hand-passing passages of play have become the norm in Gaelic football, and maybe we've all become used to this style of play, but it is absolutely abysmal to watch. Something needs to drastically change. 
and John, who's from Cork, was at the game. He suggests, for, in- for instance, and others have as well, once you enter the 45, you can come back out again. Curious to hear your thoughts on the current state of Gaelic football and how maybe the spectacle can be improved. Keep up the good work, John and Cork. Uh, several have made the observation that the Cork Clare game first half was like the personification of this lateral hand passing, yeah. never-ending recycling Gaelic football. Look, I, I, I'm torn on it. If you were to say to me, what's the state of Gaelic football? I would say the elite matches, certain quarterfinals, but certainly semi-finals and final. The Gaelic football is as brilliant as it's ever been. It's better by a distance. It's so, so good. And that's been the case for at least the last decade. I, like, I'm blown away by some of the games, those Mayo-Dublin games, the games we're having of late. The early stages, I just think it is turgid and we can dress it up as tactically uh, dense and uh, sophisticated. I don't think it is that. I think there's a paucity of imagination. I think limited teams bring players behind the ball and I think limited teams on the ball uh, don't know how to break it down. Players are afraid to make mistakes. That's on Cork rather than Clare. So Cork got three points in play all game. They've got a stacked team. Totally. Clare played to win. Yeah, okay, no, totally. Interesting of itself. I'm not just talking about that game, but... Doesn't make it good to watch, though. I, I no, just, I, I think you could talk about it in interesting terms, but mm. there, there are times I'm watching teams going back and forth across the pitch. And sometimes there is a method. I'm sure Roscommon were trying to play down the clock when they had the wind against them and Mayo weren't engaging, so they just kept going back and forth. But there's times where it is just possession for possession stake, sake. And I think we're too quick to be like def- deferential and saying, oh, what's the... What's, what brilliant tactical thing is at play here that we're, you know, we need to break down. Sometimes it's just really, really uh, turgid attack with no panache, yeah. no risk taking. I'm not going to be the one who gives the ball away. Here you go, Mick, you take it. Yeah. Just an, a, like a deadness to it. And, and it is in the earlier stages. And I, I think you can dress it up all you want. I, I do think it has a problem. I think it's really boring. You're both making the same point, though. It's oh, hundred percent. No, but uh, sorry, what I, maybe separate, maybe in different ways. But it's a hundred percent about the attacking team. You can't put two pace back in the tube. You can't say you can't have fifteen men behind the ball. That's just the way to defend. And also, like, the, uh, you know, say the f- not being able to go back outside your forty-five should not only make things worse. All of the solutions that people have, and not going backwards out of your halfway, yeah, yeah, yeah. Down, they'll only make things worse because people will just be deeper and deeper. And you know, all, basically every solution I've ever heard would all—they always would have unintended consequences of making it all even more defensive and slower and all this. A shot clock would lead to nil all games. Yeah, I think because you would have such deep defending and you would end up having pot shots from the 45 on the shot clock and so on right but you're 100% right all of the effort and all of the conversation that goes into Gaelic football seems to be about defending seems to be about how to stop how to stop how to stop where's the coaching and where's the innovation when it comes to attack if you're like if you're a basketball team you expect to be Five and five in attack, five and five in defence, right? It's obviously, you know, it's a much bigger pitch and it's 15 people. It's not exactly comparable, but there is, you know, that you find ways around it. That's half your job is to be, you, you know, it's just, what I find is that we're years into this. We're years and years into this. And football teams like Cork on Sunday are like surprised or don't know how to face this because it's like, this isn't what we're expecting. This isn't what we grew up with. I don't know how to break down this kind of defence. You should just assume that this is what you're going up against every time you play football now. And I think you know, and the, there's no innovation whatsoever. No, and the lack of risk taking bothers me, I have to say. Like, yeah. you spend your whole life training, you're an amateur, this is supposed to be your 
joy, your freedom of expression, your, you know, the best days of your life. You train all year round and then you go out and just all fear of failure. Don't throw a punch. And I do often think, be it the weather or the culture or our DNA or any number of other um, anthropological reasons you want to throw up, like we do seem to be defensively oriented as a sporting nation. Our, our football team, Stephen Kenny, trying to change that now, which is interesting. It's about grit and hard work and defensive solidity. Like I do, I would love to see what the Brazilians and the Portuguese and the Dutch would do with Gaelic football. Mm. The Almond Risca Championship can't be underestimated here, though, as well, Joe. So Mayo Roscommon played a few weeks ago. Mayo had one third of the scoring chances they had a few weeks ago. So Roscommon learned from that league game. Sure. Some teams just changed their approach entirely last weekend. Like Offaly against Longford. Offaly withdrew players back in, which is not the way they played in the National Football League. Mm. But yet when they wanted to hold on for a win, hadn't won away in Leinster since 1997, that's more important than playing stylish football that the neutral is Yeah, so, so we're like uh, Italian 1980s leanings is, is the way the sport is, is pitched at the moment. I think one of the main takeaways as well, the offensive mark is not been the solution that people thought it would be. That's what I'm saying. It's not about rules. It needs to be about Cultural counteracting. Yeah. Like, why are defensive coaches always the ones who win the battles? Because def- defence is easier to obviously set up in all sports versus attack. Yeah. And you're like, you divide an island of this size into 32 teams. There will be limitations on the attacking prowess of individuals. If we're, and so it's easier to get them super fit, super organised defence, punch on the counterattack. Yeah. But it's, I, you know, you use the word homogenised, Arthur. I think we're all, they're all playing the same way at the moment. David Clifford said that a few weeks ago. Every game looks the same. Yeah, I, I don't have as much of a problem about it. You kind of accept it for what it is. Because I think, again, a lot of these things, I think, comes down to... So I appreciate no one's harking back to a golden age necessarily. But the yeah. fact of the matter is we're just seeing more games than we ever have before. Mm-hmm. I don't think the standard has gotten any different in terms of like that there was these great games before, like that, you know, the Cork and Clare would be a classic. It wouldn't. More often than not, Cork would have hammered a shite out of Clare and that would have been it and they move That's on. True. The fact that Clare can compete and have completed and built something really special. Yeah. I think that's to be celebrated rather than think. I just think for a lot of people like Gaelic football might just not be your thing because mm. that like as you're saying so defence is easier to do but there are seriously again I assume you, you'd give it the benefit of the doubt there are seriously equipped people who are given a lot of time to thinking about Gaelic football and implementing plans within the sport and given time and mm. given the resources in certain cases and they're getting results you know someone like again whatever with the, the Mickey Hart situation in Louth three divisions in four years are gone up or whatever three, three four whatever it was up to the, you know on the cusp of division one I, I I don't know. I, I think that there's if there's that kind of room for innovation within a game where you can turn a county's f- kind of form line around so rapidly if you get things right, I think that's more interesting than like what like basketball. I like. I don't think the equivalent hurling is very interesting for what hurling is at the minute. I think where the skill level has just gone through the roof. But you're never going to have football like that. Mm. It just won't work. People can't. You can't. The pitch would have to be smaller. You know what I mean? It just can't work. There's no. So I don't know what the if if the if we want the base level to be Dublin Mayo All Ireland final. Yeah. Then Dublin Mayo All Ireland final isn't so special anymore. It 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 does. The, the year doesn't reach a crescendo. I, I think so. Not, like, they're, I th- they're, they're very we, good points. Do we not just want something happening in the game though? There's, there's is, too though. much it time happening. when there is nothing happening. That's not true. Well, okay, it's all but, it's all building to something like, you yeah. Yeah. Okay. I think so. I, f- I find it incredibly, incredibly dull to watch and I do appreciate that there's a zealous 
uh, group there that I don't think is shrinking. I think that there's a people who are more into Gaelic football than they've ever been before. Yeah. And like I think that a lot of that is culture and a lot of that is where you come from and what you grow up with. Oh, yeah. But for them, they're enjoying football more than I, ever. And I don't think they care. I don't think they care if it's if it's poor to watch. Um, they see maybe more in it. I don't know, or maybe they want to see more in it. Is would be my my uh, personal uh, theory. But um, it's yeah. but I would worry about the people who watch sport in this country in general. I would worry about the people who like just like will I you know turn on now for a few months. Um, but we also be watching the Premier League as they overlap even more than ever, and the end of the rugby season and so on, and more choice whatever with more hurling on as to whether that middle ground person sticks with it because it's just dreadful like most of the time and I, w- one thing I, I and yet this weekend there was loads of good stories and I felt more in tune with it yeah, than ever than, than I have in months and months because you had three big upsets and it was exciting but if you actually watched the 70 minutes they weren't I enjoyed watching Leach from New York as well that was exciting yeah that was lively the yeah. minute that you watch those two teams you're just thinking a better team is going to take them apart probably sometimes it's, it's funny when a sport sometimes it's more interesting to listen to podcasts and read about them to watch the uh, yeah. the action times one thing I don't like though is if you voice that opinion there can be like a slightly snobbish well you just don't understand what you're seeing you're not appreciating the nuances of this someone's going to have to explain the nuances I'm not seeing uh, at times it's just a lot of men behind the ball and a lot of lateral hand passing I mean you can dress that up as patience and all sorts of sophistication but I don't think it is I think it's just uh, a stalemate it's like that in every sport, though, isn't it? It is. Like there's that, always the people who uh, want to see it for more than what it is sure. will tell you you don't have a clue what you're talking about you because you dismiss it. And there's a lot of Snorefest soccer games, a lot of Snorefest URC rugby games. So this is not a problem you yeah. need to GA either. Just in my notes, Joe, a couple of weeks ago, Morris Brosnan was talking to Johnny Maloney, the former Offaly captain who's over in Galway now. Yeah. And Johnny Maloney said that most teams in Division 3 and 4 of the league didn't touch video analysis until about 2016 or 2017. I wonder how much of an impact that has, that there's now far more data, uh, they're more driven around tactics, actually looking at other teams, that that is now going to also result in the teams further down the ladder being remarkably well prepared for who they're playing. Yeah. Well, we'll see. I'm sure there'll be a response to that. Fellas, I think we are pretty much out of time, unless there's anything else we must mention. Over time again, Joe. Over time. As we tend to be. Will, thank you very much. Cheers. Arthur O'D, thank you. Cheers, Joe. Michael, thank you. That was a slight tangent. You can, as ever, email us at uh, slight tangent at offtheball.com.